Good morning. My name is Susan Rattan. Uh, welcome to the Unitarian Church of Edmonton. I will be your service leader today with the help of many people, including Coralie Cairns, Gordon Ritchie, Ruth Marriott, and uh, numerous others. We hope you feel welcome here. The Unitarian Church of Edmonton is a liberal, religious, multi-generational community. We celebrate a rich mosaic of free-thinking, spiritually questing individuals joined in common support and action. We welcome diversity, pursue the common good, and work for justice. We believe in the compassion of the individual heart, the warmth of community, and the search for meaning in our lives. We gather with gratitude this morning on Treaty 6 land. A treaty is an inheritance, a responsibility, and a relationship. May we be good neighbors to one another, good stewards to our planet, and good ancestors to all of our children. If you are new here, we invite you to stay afterwards for coffee and to get to talk to us. There is a table across from this door with some information that you might like about what we do here. As we begin this special hour, I invite you to quiet your devices and yourselves so that we can enjoy the service. May we be reminded here of our highest aspirations and inspired to bring our gifts of love and service to the altar of humanity. May we know once again that we are not isolated beings, but are connected in mystery and miracle to the universe, to the community, and to each other. We begin with music from our special guest, the Pepperseed Steel Orchestra, led by Earl Ellis. Uh, many of these people have family in the church, so we are so glad to have them here. Thank you. 
Our readings today come from the Book of Embers, one of Jibwe's meditations written by the great First Nations writer Richard Wagamis. It was published in 2017, the year he died. Wagamis tells us he wrote these meditations in the early morning as part of a spiritual ritual that included smudging and reading spiritual books. Today we will share some of his early morning thoughts. From our very first breath, we are in a state of relationship. From the indrawn draft of air, we become joined to everything that ever was, will be, and is. When we exhale, we forge that relationship by virtue of the act of living. Our breath commingles with all breaths, and we are part of everything. That is the simple fact of things. We are born into a state of relationship, and our ceremonies and rituals are guides that lead us deeper into that relationship with all things. Big lesson, relationships never end. They just change. In believing that lies the freedom to carry compassion, empathy, love, kindness, and respect into and through whatever changes. We are made more by that practice. We will sing hymn 361, Enter, Rejoice, and Come In. join us in a responsive reading, uh, number 584, by Martin Luther King, Jr. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. There are some things in our social system which all of us ought to be maladjusted. Hatred and bitterness, and never fear of the disease of fear. Only love can do that. 
We must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. Before it is too late, we must narrow the gaping chasm between our proclamations of peace and our lowly deeds which participate and perpetuate war. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. Our community is entirely self-governing and self-supporting. One of the privileges of our free church tradition is to provide all of the financial support for our many ministries from among ourselves. Generosity, therefore, is one of the spiritual values we recognize as central to our personal and institutional well-being. Some of you may know I'm a former church treasurer, so this is my little ad that I'm adding here. In the back of your gray hymn book is an envelope where you can put money that the church can then know it's from you and give you a tax receipt. It's hard to do it right now, but feel free to take that envelope home with you and at some future date, if you'd like to donate to the church in a way that the church will know it's from you, uh, bring the envelope back. Uh, We also, of course, make a monthly contribution to uh, Beyond Our Wells to a charity, and this year, this month, it is the iHuman Youth Society. So, uh, carry on. Oh, and we have music.
We will now sing our regular receiving the offering song from you I receive. The words are in your order of service. It is love itself that brings us all together, this human family we are part of, this singular voice that is the accumulation of all voices raised together in the praise of all creation, this one heartbeat, this one drum, this one immaculate love that put us here together so that we could learn its primary teaching, that love is the energy of creation, that it takes love to create love. I grew up in a remote mining town in northern Manitoba called Lynn Lake. And in the years I lived there, there was no road connecting Lynn Lake to the outside world. You could get on a plane a couple of days a week, which was quite expensive, or you could take the train, which came in a couple of times a week. It was a freight train, but it had... Uh, two passenger cars at the end. One was the car where townsfolk like myself sat, and the other one was commonly called the Indian car. In the Indian car were people not from Lynn Lake because the mining company did not hire Indians. They lived in small, very traditional communities in the bush, lived a traditional lifestyle, very few government services. And uh, in the town when I was there, there were two indigenous families with houses and jobs and kids in school. That was it. Today, Lynn Lake is the site of the Marcel Colomb First Nation, about 500 people, and they represent about 95% of the population of Lynn Lake. The Mines closed a couple of decades ago, and the settler population, like my parents, moved on. The First Nations people did not. They moved in, took over the empty houses, and they're making a life there. I share this story as we think about our ethnic heritage. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, dear. There'll be a short delay. (laughs) I share this story as we think about our ethnic heritage as a province and country in this month that we call Black History Month. The term comes from the United States, a country which has still not fully acknowledged and dealt with the huge evils that it was caused by slavery and the prejudice and disadvantage that continues today for black Americans. I'm grateful for this idea of Black History Month because it makes me think about what happened to disadvantaged minority groups in our own country, including in Lynn Lake, of course, and which continue today. For me, those groups are first and foremost black Canadians and indigenous Canadians. 
By saying so, I don't in any way uh, ignore the discrimination and horrible things that are dealt with by Muslims in this country and Sikhs and ever and eternally, it seems, by our Jewish community. But a recent study showed that the two minorities that feel most hurt by racism in Canada are black and indigenous. So my reflections today will focus there. Let's start first by thinking about what kind of country we are today. One in five Canadians was born abroad, very often in India, China, or the Philippines, not in Europe. 22% of Canadians are visible minority people, and that's a percentage that will increase every year from now on. We see that changing society all around us. The grocery store that I go to has a halal meat section, which it did not have 10 years ago, but there is a market now for halal meat in the Islamic community. Last month, we learned in tragic circumstances that we have a small, amazing uh, Iranian community here, mainly at the university, and we lost a whole group of them which was so sad, but they were doing such amazing things, and they would have stayed here, I think. We are one of the most mixed countries in the world in terms of ethnicity, and most Canadians understand that's a huge blessing. A recent Enveronix study found that only 13% of Canadians say they think there are too many immigrants in the country. We have lots of things to deal with, but we are not the United States. And yet, the work of building a just and tolerant Canada is never done. We must pay attention, speak out about intolerance and injustice, reflect on what's been done in our name in the past, and think about what more we should be doing. Which brings me to Don Cherry. (laughs) He was one of... He was a huge Canadian celebrity because of his commentaries on Hockey Night in Canada and his outrageous outfits. So thousands of people heard him last fall when he did this rant about, you people who come here, you have to be like me, you have to talk like me, you've got to eat the same food as me. And uh, happily, thousands and thousands protested that commentary and Don Cherry was gonged by the next day. The incident set off a series of public revelations about bigotry in Canada. Most shocking for me was the hockey player originally from Nigeria, Akeem Aliou, who revealed that 10 years ago, uh, his hockey coach, Bill Peters, had dissed him down in the uh, locker room using racial slurs. That revelation prompted prompted some people in the hockey world to reflect on what needs to change in terms of hockey culture, and not a minute too soon. Large majorities of indigenous people and black Canadians say their groups experience discrimination and obstacles, the Environic study found. Sometimes that discrimination is overt, sometimes just little insults that drag you down. And I I think about Jesse Lipscomb, 
who is a third-generation Edmontonian and man of color who is an actor in our town. In 2016, he was shooting a video on a downtown street, and some guy pulled his car over and shouted a racial slur at him. Jesse being Jesse uh, just marched over to talk to the guy who took off in his car. But in the following days, Lipscomb and Mayor Don Iveson launched the hashtag Make It Awkward campaign. Its message, don't let people get away with bigotry. Be an everyday activist. I just love that idea, and I think it's a good message for Canadians who are very polite, but there are times not to be polite. There's times to be an everyday activist. Another unpleasant incident struck me. It started uh, last spring in an Edmonton Catholic school where an 11-year-old boy, Emil Somerville, wore his do-rag to school. A do-rag is a black scarf. You probably know you tie it at the back. The school, had a rule, the school board has a rule about no head scarves. And somebody even said to Emil that it, a do-rag is a symbol of being in a gang. Well, I looked it up, and GQ magazine says a do-rag is a utilitarian marker of black cool. <laughs> not, a, not a gang sign. Emil's mom, who has been fi- fighting for him, still is at it with the, the school board, called the do-rag a ser- spiritual symbol of black culture. And I thought, what a wonderful thing for a young guy going to school in Edmonton where there's a, a lot of people who don't look like you to have on his head is a spiritual symbol of black culture. Emil's mom made it awkward for the Edmonton Catholic School Board that is still in the process of learning about how they screwed this up. <laughs> for our indigenous population in Edmonton, particularly those living in the inner city with so little money and few places to call their own, I suspect there are thousands of incidents of insult and hurt that we don't hear about. From those profoundly disadvantaged people, we need more make-it-awkward moments. Our understanding of the harm we settlers have done to Indigenous people has come a long way in recent years. The Federal Truth and Reconciliation Report came out about five years ago and taught us all the incredible damage that was done by residential schools. And so we are also learning from groups like Idle No More. And we must continue to learn. I've been watching, and I'm sure some of you have, the protests going on across the country in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in British Columbia. And I'm not personally going to endorse every blockade that's going on across the country, but I take it as a time to learn and think and prepare to change in how we do things. Uh, Many of you will know that the problems in British Columbia started with the settlers who moved there and decided it wasn't worth their time to uh, sign treaties with the Indians there, so most the First Nations in British Columbia have no treaties. That means there's no rule book about how to deal with these things. So let us all be open to learning and listening and supporting Indigenous people as they find their rightful place in this country. 
Let us also understand how far we are from ensuring an equal life for Indigenous people. They make up 4% of the population of Canada and 26% of prison inmates. Life expectancies for a First Nations man in Canada is 15 years shorter than for other men and for women 10 years shorter. Nor can we ever ignore the challenge that, that a person of color may still have in this country. You may have seen, just before Christmas, the report came out in Nova Scotia, a province that has had a black population for centuries, that found that a black person walking down the street of Halifax has five times the chance of getting stopped by police in a random check. So in, still in the police there is racism that the Nova Scotia government has decided it has to prevent all of these kind of police checks because it's just too unfair. The Enveronics poll found most Canadians are hopeful that we can do better in our relationships with the mix of people who call Canada home. I feel that hopefulness myself, although I am, of course, a privileged white person and a retired person to boot. I'm particularly hopeful after spending three months last summer knocking on doors in the mill woods on behalf of the liberal federal candidate, Amarjeet Sohi. He, of course, lost, as you probably know, but uh, I got to know Sohi when he was a city councillor and I was a city hall reporter, nicest politician I ever knew. So I was happy to knock on doors and I always went out with one other person and usually it was a young person in grade 11, 12, early university years. And there were about eight of them. All of them were from non-European backgrounds. Most of them had parents who had come here as immigrants, got a job, got a house, got their kids going to school. A couple of these kids were Muslim, a couple were Sikh, a couple were some variation of connected to Africa, you know, I couldn't tell. They had skin colors of all sorts, uh, but they were very alike, these kids. And I looked at them and thought, I just hope we can get to a point where skin color ceases to be a definition of a person. There's a show on PBS that I like called Finding Your Roots, in which the host, Henry Louis Gates Jr., takes celebrities through their family history and often their DNA. And I'm struck by how often somebody who is a black American has DNA from Europe, often First Nations. They're a mix, just as all of us are kind of a mix as well. I'm not a fan, a fan of rap music, but I love the fact that Drake, the Canadian rapper, has a black American father and a Jewish mom and that he acknowledges both sides of his heritage and embraces them. He's part of the Canada that we must celebrate. I don't kid myself, there are white supremacists out there, certainly in our province there are. There's not a lot of them, but they can do an enormous amount of damage. So we always have to be on our guard. But what struck me most about the Millwoods kids last summer was how alike they were regardless of their ethnic background. 
smart, keen, ambitious, hardworking. There was a kid, young man, in, going into grade 11, and he told me he's planning to become prime minister. And I don't count him out. There was a young woman um, going into um, McEwen University just in January, going to take criminology, and plans to become a police officer, and she's Muslim, and I think a young woman Muslim police officer, that's not a bad thing. These kids are our future, and they're a very bright future. I have to add that what makes them thrive is that we have one of the best public school systems in the country, in the world. I mean, they take these kids, hardly any English, and in a couple of years, they're just going like gangbusters. We have a government right now that is monkeying around with the funding and the organization of our public school system, and it has me really worried. So that's one of our jobs. But our bigger job is to ensure in every way that all Canadian children get that good start in life that the children of Millwoods that I got to know, these children of immigrants, have had. May we be up to the challenge. Blessed be. Hymn number 100. I've got peace like a river.
we will enter a period of meditation. We will sing hymn number 123, Spirit of Life, sitting down. And then we will have some words, then a period of silence. And then we will hear our musicians for the last time. Yes, Spirit of Life. All we have are moments, so live them as though no, not one can be wasted. Inhabit them. Fill them with the light of your best good intention. Honor them with your full presence. Find the joy, the calm, the assuredness that allows the hours and the days to take care of themselves. If we can do that, we will have lived.
You made me cry, guys. We have a last hymn, 134, Our World is One World. Our closing words are, in fact, not by Richard Wagamese, but by Brian Kiley, who used to be around here. <laughs> the chalice is now extinguished, but its light lived... Oh, it isn't extinguished. <laughs> oh, oh, do you want it like... Oh, there's a thing. services in future. Remember this. <laughs> Challenge is now extinguished, but its light lives on in the minds and hearts and souls of each one of you. Carry that flame with you as you leave this place and share it with those you know, those you love, and those, especially those you have yet to meet. We will join hands and sing carry the flame, after which we have announcements. <laughs> <laughs>